I was working in a slaughterhouse. My job was to grasp two cantilevers with escapement mechanisms to manipulate the movement of the huge chain-driven winch hoist as it would rattle and clank across the top of the room, and from which hung a series of meat hooks holding the dripping carcasses of sheep, cows, chickens, ducks, lambs, deer, moles, beavers, and inexplicably, sometimes an occasional human being, a scuba diver wearing goggles and flippers, a scoutmaster, a man in a bathrobe and slippers, with a small dog hanging from a leash. Now, how these people got penned in with the animals and had their throats slit, I don't know. In any case, working there was like being on the inside of a huge clockwork in which there were crisscrossing escalators with bleating and struggling animals, moving upward to chambers where you could hear chainsaws, small arms fire, exploding hand grenades. The machinery was obsolete and often broke down, and sometimes there would be pile-ups of carcasses or major foul-ups like cows going in the wrong direction into the chicken-plucking zone where machinery would pluck at non-existent feathers on their hides. And occasionally, workers themselves would be swept into the machinery. An empty meat hook would swing by, hook someone's collar, and hoist him up along with the dead animals. But it was against company rules to ever halt the mechanism although a huge alarm bell would go off, alerting people as to what had just happened, to become aware of the fact that one of their co-workers had been hooked and was about to be processed, so that we could all wave goodbye. There were also priests walking up and down the aisles, swinging censers filled with smoking incense, who blessed the animals. And there was a huge mural of St. Francis, holding an electric cattle prod and a pair of pinking shears. The slaughterhouse was dark and noisy, with great gouts of steam blowing out from ventilators, and blood splattered everywhere. There were sluice gates that allowed water to cascade across the floor, washing it clean into gutters that ran into spillways that gave into a river nearby river tinted pink by the slaughterhouse grist. The floor manager, Bruno, was a burly, barrel-chested man with a bald head and a handlebar mustache. He was always red-faced, a vein pounding in his forehead as he screamed at the top of his lungs at the workers because he was outraged at the the lack of humor and camaraderie on the line, at what he considered the absence of humanity and sensitivity and understanding. When Bruno reported to the plant manager, Mr. Skeffington, he'd wash his face, buff his nails, zip his fly, put on his sports jacket, his toupee, splash himself with some cologne, 
suck on a breath mint. And then, finally, he'd come into Mr. Skeffington's office, washed, powdered, perfumed, combed, and quaffed, and present his report. He might say, Mr. Skeffington, we're having some trouble with rotating knife number three. We need a blade replacement. We're also running out of piano wire. Some of the electric prods have failed to recharge overnight because the selenium rectifiers haven't been replaced or purged in months. And the thoracic tracery pinions need to be repointed. Oh, and one of the carcass guy wires snapped during a conveyor reversal, releasing a large Guernsey that fell, crushing to death one of the workers, a Miss Havlis. Otherwise, I'm proud to say the operations of the plant remain highly efficient. Now, whenever a worker died at the slaughterhouse, Mr. Skeffington would send out a condolence summons requiring that the bereaved family appear, pay a fine, and remove the body of the deceased in a large styrofoam container. The atmosphere of death had a curious effect on all the workers. It seemed to raise their sexual ardor. Couples would constantly sneak into the maintenance closet to make love amongst the buckets, rags, and mops. And just outside the door, there was a day book, a large, full-folio-sized ledger with red margins and dates with the names of the people who'd used the closet with an area for comments so that everyone after making love, could come out and write entries, describing their experiences right next to their names. It was called The History of Love at Wembley Farms, which was the name of the slaughterhouse. There was a young woman there, Wilma, who worked a little further down the assembly line, and she and I would go into the maintenance closet amidst the mops and the pails and the cans of disinfectant and make passionate love. The most memorable and powerful lovemaking I have ever experienced in my life. And in retrospect, I think the ardor we felt for one another that everyone there felt was due, at least in part, to exposure to the constant presence of death all around us. Once uh, Wilma and I spent a few hours in a motel room in town, and a few days after that, we lay down together in an alpine field of little white Edelweiss flowers. And a week later, on a beautiful moonlit night, by the side of the lake, climbed into the back of my car amidst the sound of the waves and the gentle wafting of perfumed breezes. And on none of these occasions were we able to consummate our union. The passion was gone. We couldn't understand what had happened. I had a Kawasaki Bushwhacker motorcycle and one afternoon, Wilma and I raced up into the hills and did some off-roading when we came upon the carcass of a moose. And 
suddenly overwhelmed by desire, we got off the bike and made love. Vultures circling above us. But you couldn't count on finding dead bodies in the countryside often enough. So we held on to our jobs at Wembley Farms because we couldn't bear losing what we experienced together in the janitor's closet. There was a town downriver from the slaughterhouse and the people who lived there were quite upset because water tinted with blood was coming out of their taps and their toilets were backing up with hooves, antlers, human fingers, mole and beaver heads. And they held a town meeting. And then, after that, a midnight parade with pitchforks and torches to the slaughterhouse, demanding that the plant be closed. And then, every day, they began to pick at the plant, marching back and forth in front of the main gate, carrying placards that said, no more blood, let the river run clear, life, not death. And I and the other employees, simply to get to work, would have to pass through this gauntlet of people who were yelling filthy butchers and river rapists at us. Skeffington's house was burned to the ground with a gasoline bomb. But Skeffington, an extremely determined man, only redoubled his efforts to keep the factory running at a fevered pitch. He added another wing and built a subterranean facility that was bomb-proof. And also, out of pure vindictiveness, he had a chute built that dumped all human waste products from the plant's urinals and toilets directly into the river. And sometimes, he would walk down to the river's edge and with great pleasure, he'd unzip his fly and pee in the water. Because Skeffington was a fanatic, a man with a mission, a soldier in his field, and he was not going to be stopped. One day, when Bruno came into Skeffington's office to report an implosion in the power stacks that caused a weak supply of beef carcasses to be liquefied, Skeffington was so enraged that he opened the upper right-hand drawer of his desk, drew out a small handgun, and shot Bruno in the head. Then Bruno's body was put on a treadmill on the assembly line and processed. So, Skeffington was not a man to be trifled with. Eventually, Wilma and I could no longer handle the, the moral dilemma of working in the slaughterhouse, this place of death that polluted the river. So we both quit and got jobs at the nuclear plant, which was very clean. We all got to wear white uniforms and shiny hard hats and paper booties. And whenever we left the central control tower, we'd have to shower and be disinfected. Curiously,
Skeffington left the slaughterhouse for the nuclear plant at roughly the same time we did, having been appointed director of operations there. I worked in the stack monitoring facility. My job was to monitor the positioning of the rods within the reactor to prevent too high a rate of fission from occurring and to maintain the temperature of the reactor coolant pods that surrounded the central core unit in tower number four. And here, again, just as in the slaughterhouse, there was the same level of heightened sexuality. Couples making love in the fuse closet, a small enclosure with bank after bank of relay boxes and fuse housings. What was particularly appealing about this location was that the men felt that their potency was increased by their proximity to the energy that radiated around them. The women also seemed to ascend to heights of passion they'd never before experienced. It appeared there was a a direct relationship between the amount of electrical power flowing through the circuitry in the room and the potential for ecstatic release. So that when people returned to their apartments and homes and tried to make love, they felt they needed to have as much electricity around them as possible. And they'd crowd as many electrical appliances into their bedrooms as they could. Toasters, clocks, radios, TV sets, stereos, fax machines, air conditioners, microwaves, every lamp in the house. Their bedrooms became a welter of appliances and extension cords. Some couples would even wrap themselves in Christmas tree lights.